0: Hello, welcome back to a very mid-between-season special of the Remedial Magic Podcast. I'd be careful calling it mid. I just found out
1: that means not good.
0: Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) it's between-season special. My name's Brady, and back with me, as always, I convinced him to come back for season two. Uh, My brother, Baylor, and our good friend, Delbert, and uh, we're back, guys. It's been... I don't know. It's been at least two weeks, probably, since we've been in the studio. It Feels like a lot longer for some reason.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting sitting here with you and Baylor here in the studio.
2: Yeah, uh, it, just a couple notes. I haven't totally decided if I'm coming back for season two, since this is season one point five. Oh, oh no. But, uh, <laughs> no! uh Yeah, uh, this is the first the first time we've been back since I've since I moved. So I'm now three hours away from. From the studio, uh, remoting in, so to speak. It's true. I've upgraded to the the better seat now, actually. I stayed
1: in the same one.
2: I've
0: moved over and taken over where you used to sit, Baylor, and I got to tell you, the view from this side of the room, it's about the same as where I used to sit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that definitely is true.
0: I will say, one thing I'm jealous of is you are podcasting, I assume, from our parents' air-conditioned house, and this room we're recording in is probably 90 degrees,
2: yeah, I, I uh, definitely am sitting here. It's probably a good 72 degrees. Uh, there's a slight breeze from the from the AC unit. It's pretty nice. I definitely don't miss the heat there. Did you convince
0: mom and dad to let you uh, convert their giant crawl space into a recording
2: studio? Have not done that yet. I think my computer probably wouldn't like it since it's a little dusty down there. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just sitting, sitting in the office in front of the piano, actually, so... Very nice. Kind of, kind of just threw my desk wherever I wanted.
0: Well, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, your new microphone setup seems like it's working fairly well. I assume that you got your mixer anyways.
2: I did, yeah. I did. Uh, it's a cute little guy. It only, like the one we were using has four inputs. Uh, this one has one. So uh, it fits perfectly right between my two massive computer screens. Well, good. That's all that really matters. So,
0: uh as it is we finished season one we took a break I think for the listeners you've only had a one week break from the podcast we've been out of the studio for two or maybe three weeks at this point and we're back happy to be back recording a couple of between season episodes uh, we've sort of teased these two episodes and talked about them for the last 10 episodes of the podcast as it is but we're excited to jump into that Uh Delbert's got a good discussion for us to have today. He's he's found a fan-made film that we're going to kind of watch and go through, and he's going to lead us through that. But before we get there, we do need to discuss our social media because what's better time for your social media presence to grow than between seasons?
1: Right. Of course.
0: So... uh <laughs> I just wanted to remind you all to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore podcast. You can send us emails at RemedialMagicPodcast at gmail.com. And in fact, we've got an email, maybe a couple by now, that we're sitting on waiting for season two to begin because they're about Alexander Quick. So you can reach us there. Uh, we've also got our link tree that you can find access to all these all the things that we've done, all the links that we have, all the social media we have, and you can also follow us on Facebook if you're uh, stuck in the early 2010s. That's definitely a place we are, so keep that in mind. But, guys, I have to say, we released a special about Fantastic Beasts, the new movie. Uh, I haven't gone to see it again. Have you? Have either of you? No. Negative. I'm starting to feel, and this isn't really about what we're talking about, but I'm starting to feel that there's a very good chance that we're not going to see another Fantastic Beasts movie.
1: I've gotten that vibe as well. I mean, I think the tomato meter at Rotten Tomatoes is still looking pretty good. But when I've been browsing through Reddit on both Harry Potter and the Fantastic Beasts subreddit, it seems like there's a lot of people that just don't think it was enough to fix the plot holes from the second movie. To make it worthwhile to continue the story.
0: Not only that, the box office just is not there. No. The opening weekend box office ended up being $42 million. Crimes of Grindelwald was $64 million by itself. So that was a major, very steep drop off. And it's just feeling like it's not going to get caught up. Still, to this day, we're quite a ways after release. Almost like three weeks after release, and they still haven't even made up their budget yet. Right. So, against against our better hopes, I just am fearful that we're not going to get any more Fantastic Beasts movies moving forward. Uh, maybe one more. They'll just wrap it up in one and call it good, but I don't know. It feels fairly bleak for that franchise.
1: Yeah, and I wonder who's to blame.
2: i wonder who indeed (laughs) i just wanted to say that for the sake of everybody in the harry potter world i really hope they bring they take the cut or they take the hit or whatever and they bring back the uh, potential for a fourth movie just to just to wrap up the series if nothing else
1: right i uh I'm just astounded that this is not on the same level of the Star Wars cinematic universe or the Marvel cinematic universe. Like, I know there's much more source material to build off of in those, but I feel like the the universe created by J.K.R. in the original series, the amount you could expand off of that, it should be making the same amount of money as those Marvel movies every time. Yeah. But, you know?
0: The only you don't thing... you give up
1: creative control, I guess...
0: The only thing is, like, I guess you just said it, you said exactly what I was going to say, and I just kept powering on through, but Star Wars has grown to be so big because they've given other people area to play in that space, and we just haven't seen that with Harry Potter very much. Even the things that have come out have had J.K. Rowling behind the scenes kind of verifying that things are the way she hopes, so I don't know. It's kind of sad to see the way that that franchise is going, but... Luckily for all of us, we there's YouTube, and we can get on YouTube and watch uh, fan films made by some really pretty talented people, and that's what we're doing today. We're taking a break from Alexandra Quick, and we're going to stay in the theme of fan fiction type stuff. And we're going to be watching a fan film, a pretty lengthy fan film, really. Uh, that we found on YouTube, and discussing that. So without further ado, Delbert, I'm going to pass this off to you because this is your discussion to lead, and uh, why don't you take us through what this fan film is, what it's called, and uh, the kind of stuff we see in it.
1: Um, Yeah, so this fan film, it's called The Sisters of House Black. Um, I believe it came out just about two years ago now. I watched it when it first came out, thought it was really good, I know I watched it a second time sometime over the whole COVID, um, situation, and, you know, watching it the third time, it really didn't disappoint. I mean, obviously, it's a lot of amateur actors and everything, but as a whole, I still really enjoyed watching it, and I think it's a beautiful piece of, uh, work to support the Harry Potter universe, but before we get too deep into it, I wanted to address something important which societally, um... I don't think we take a huge political stance on the podcast, but we do like to support human rights. And we'd like to acknowledge that this piece of content was made heavily by members of the LGBTQ community. And when we were glancing through the YouTube comments, the top comment was a statement about that. And there was a lot of arguments within about whether or not people should support this, even though it is LGBTQ made. Because at the same time, they're still supporting JKR despite her comments. So I just wanted to break down a quick discussion about what we think on that.
0: Yeah, so I'm looking at that comment thread right now. And the the comment that spawned this was just a like a disclosure by the creator of the film. Uh, just saying, hey, this is made by a majority LGBTQ cast. And I'm not going to erase their work, even in light of the comments that are being made by J.K. Rowling and as far as this conversation goes about well if you watch a fan film you're still indirectly supporting J.K. Rowling I, I guess I could see in a way how that makes sense but J.K. Rowling's not making money directly from this fan film uh, on top of that this was made by people who are just like us and love Harry Potter enough to expand the universe through fan fiction and through other fan creations and so I just frankly disagree with the people in the comments of this video who are who are saying that uh, you shouldn't watch this or support something like this because of the implications of J.K. Rowling. I don't think that that's the deep underlying message. I think the deep underlying message for the people who made this film is they love Harry Potter and they wanted to uh, make a project within that space, and I fully
2: support that. I agree. I, I support him one hundred percent as well. I also think that it's really cool that despite what JKR did, that this group was able to come together and put together a piece of of, of art. I mean, honestly. I mean it was the CGI in the in this uh, fan film, yes, it's not the best. Obviously it's not Hollywood quality, same with the acting, but for I don't really know how these people got together and did these did this uh Fan film, but for presumably like some friends, maybe some classmates, whatever. Like they did a great job, and and I just think it goes to show uh, JKR that oh yeah, these these people are capable of everything that you know everybody else is. You know, so it's, it, I think it's really powerful in that way, and uh, kind of on the on what you said, Bertie. Um, when I when I think of like Star Wars, I mean it's something that has expanded you know, so wide with so many shows, so many movies. Um, When I think of Star Wars, obviously that's all canon stuff in the Star Wars universe, but when I think of Star Wars, I think that's the Star Wars universe. And with this, it's kind of, obviously it's it's a fan film, it's made by fans, but I still think, oh, Harry Potter universe. I don't think J.K. Rowling's universe, you know? They're not directly backing J.K. Rowling in any way, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to further expand on that, that, I think in most cases, you have to separate the art from the artist, per se. So, I'm not going to stop rereading my Harry Potter books because of what JKR said. It's the same way that if I had the money to afford a Tesla, I'm still going to buy it, even though I think Elon is a pretty bad guy overall. There's so many um, powerful corporate elites and artists and actors and everything out there. We saw it with the Me Too movement. We see it all the time in the corporate elite world where there's there's just bad people, but you can still respect what they did from the art side of it, from what they create, and still not support that person, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I just think that there's a big argument to be made for separating the work and the product that we all love from the person who created it, right? right. Like, Harry Absolutely. Potter doesn't have to mean... Like, you don't have to love J.K. Rowling because you love Harry Potter. You can love Harry Potter and also express disdain for the things that J.K. Rowling has been saying. And I think that's the point that the creator of this fan film has been trying to get across. It's like, hey, LGBT people worked on this. I'm not going to get rid of it just because of what J.K.R. said. I'm proud that these people worked on this with me. And so I just uh, it's my opinion and that. It doesn't matter who worked on it necessarily, right? It's probably, there's not, there's no need for a disclosure that the cast is primarily LGBTQ uh, community members, but the or the creator of the film going as far as to say, hey, these are the people who made this and we're not going to erase their work because it's important to them and it's important to me that we have more openness in this community, Uh That's exactly my standpoint as well, is that the community can represent these people regardless of what J.K.R. is saying. Right. Right.
1: And I would even go one step further and say, while she didn't need to do it, I think it's awesome she did disclose that. Because, I mean, you might have some people in the Harry Potter universe that don't really think too much about the politics of things and just kind of take the words of the author that they look at as like, you know, oh, this is probably correct but now in their own universe they get to see a differing opinion from granted just a small content creator but nonetheless a different opinion
0: yeah i mean harry potter is a space for for everybody who wants to be involved and i think uh it's it's become more and more evident that people are going to continue enjoying harry potter loving harry potter uh, i'm part of that right that's why i'm part of this podcast and they're going to continue doing that regardless of what the creator says, right? J.K. Rowling is one person. There's millions of fans of Harry Potter out there. And so really the fans have taken ownership of this series and franchise anyways. And that's why you see movies like Fantastic Beasts struggling, right? Past the bad writing and the poor storytelling. It's also because the fans are saying, hey, we don't stand for what you are. So we're going we're gonna to enjoy other things. I think with all that being said, I just wanted to throw out there that to go along with the release of this episode, I also have donated, uh, made a small donation to uh, to a nonprofit called Mermaids, which stands for LGBT uh, community rights, just as a kind of a way to solidify our podcast stance on this issue. So. Perfect. With that being said, yeah,
1: I I mean, I just wanted to bring that up at the beginning because this is a fun story and everything but it also has some impact on real life and I feel like talking about that is a lot better than sweeping it under the rug. So um before we get started in the actual uh discussion of this podcast or of this fan fiction, sorry. I would like to also let you guys know that this is made by I believe Kelsey Ellison is her name. She it's on her YouTube channel She's the writer, she's the director, and she plays Bellatrix in this. And also that this was entirely made on an Indiegogo budget of $16,000. So, like Baylor said, the CGI isn't going to be on a Hollywood level. But for $16,000, I think they did an incredible job. And we can get into discussing all that. Sounds good. So, let's dive into Sisters of House Black. In the intro, we see a lot of interesting visuals with memories and a pensive and all these cool little things going around, and it opens up to the main three sisters of House Black. It first shows Andromeda and Bellatrix in Hogwarts, and they are doing something that uh, Brady doesn't care for. They're doing a priori incantatum.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's an overused visual in the wizarding world that when it was written represented something much more special than like schoolyard antics right and we're seeing it everywhere we see it here too and i have to say especially in a fan film you would see this because it is a nice neat cool visual to look at and so the fact that (laughs) the fact that we're seeing it here uh doesn't bother me as much as when we see it in officially produced
2: warner brothers wizarding world stuff yeah um, what well, also is kind of a a good ident- identifying feature, you know, of of oh, this is a Harry Potter movie because that is such a prevalent. It does do that. Symbol. That is
1: true. I mean, we've we've seen a lot of it now, and I, I'm sure the Fantastic Beasts has thrown a lot into uh, turmoil as far as ca- canonical thinking goes. But it seems that out of that series and what we've seen in Harry Potter and other things, is that pre orient cantatum might not be as rare as we thought.
0: Sure. You know, uh, one thing about this scene that I think is particularly important is the Priori Incantatum is happening between Bellatrix and Andromeda. Right. And as we know from official canon, Bellatrix becomes maybe the most sadistically evil witch in the entire series, and Andromeda actually is on the side of good and is a member of the Order of the Phoenix. And so I think that there's some really unique symbolism here because we also see Narcissa, the third sister, caught in the middle.
1: Right, because she walks up with a young Lucius Malfoy and gets egged on to uh, throw her wand into the mix and have a nice little uh, three-way priori incantatum. I
0: guess. Yeah, but so. What It's cool. I think it's cool because she's caught in the middle, and then when she throws her wand in, her magic, it kind of blows the whole spell up and it ends that way instead right
1: yeah it's an interesting way to start it it introduces us to the characters right away um but before we talk about the characters i want to include the very next scene to just get a couple more characters in there where it's showing the home life of the black sisters it shows their father who seems to be extremely abusive um he's emotionally assault insulting bellatrix and threatening to use obliviation on Bellatrix as well, which we find out through the mother and the sisters is something that has happened multiple times to this point.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting as well. Uh, I don't know how you guys felt about this, but the, the scene establishing that Bellatrix, the way that her father handles her is by obliviating her so she forgets whatever her motivation is. I think that uh, that's definitely foreshadowing to the type of person she becomes. You can probably only be Obliviated so many times before you lose your marbles a little bit, kind of go off your rocker.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I It's kind of interesting that Obliviation is being used as a punishment uh, with a child, you know. So uh, especially given what we've talked about in previous episodes, how we think that Obliviation is you know, undue, undue punishment for Muggles or for whoever in canon Harry Potter, like a, a father doing that to a child is clearly uh, an overstep, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and clear, clear abuse, you know.
0: He's definitely very concerned with the fact that one of his daughters might not want to marry a pure blood wizard. And we see later that he's off base on which one that is. He thinks right. Bellatrix doesn't want to marry a pureblood wizard. And so he's threatening her this way. And just to throw their names out there, because we do have canon names for uh, the Black sisters' parents, the father's name is Cygnus Black and the mother's name is Druella Black. So Cygnus and Druella are here showing that pure blood prejudice that we would expect from uh, the family that produced somebody like Bellatrix.
1: Right. And to me, and we'll actually see her later on, they really remind me of the book written version of Sirius's mother. Like just the most putrid kind of people who only care about blood status. I mean, as far as this little short film goes, I feel like they really nailed that component of society societal thinking in the wizarding world.
0: I agree. I it's you have to you have to establish who Bellatrix's family is and we already know who they are essentially because of the side of the war they're on. So this shot does a really good job of establishing that.
1: Right. So at this point, I, I mean, this is basically the intro so far. We covered the uh, scene at Hogwarts. We covered the scene at home. But we've seen most of the impactful characters already throughout. Um, we saw the Black Parents, who you just named, Drilla and Sig- Sigmund? Cygnus. Cygnus. We've seen the three sisters, Bellatrix, Andromeda, Narcissa. We've seen Lucius Malfoy, and we've seen Rodolphus Lestrange. We see all of these characters, aside from the parents, in the r- original series, if I'm correct. We do, yes. Um, how do you think they measure up to their adult acting counterparts?
0: Just in terms of the way the characters look?
1: Yeah, I mean, up to now, or you can even consider the entire film, just how do you think on a character level... They compare to who played them before.
2: Uh, that's a good question, Baylor. What do you think? Um, I think Bellatrix is really well done. Uh, I, honestly, like a lot of like all of the all of these uh, actors did the best they could. Obviously, I mean they. Unfortunately, we have the the image of of what uh, Warner Brothers gave us in our minds for what these characters should look like. But I really thought Bellatrix was well cast. Um, I think. Uh, you know, you know, like like they they reminded me of everyone. I I didn't need the names to know who uh, Bellatrix was, who Lucius was, you know, who Andromeda was. So, in that sense, I think that they were well done. If that, hopefully, that makes sense.
0: I agree. I for the most part, I mean, it's easy enough to tell who these people are supposed to be. Right. The one person who I would question if it's not established immediately would be Andromeda, and that's because I don't know if we get to know her. In the original films, I can't remember off yeah, the top think- of my yeah, head. I can't remember either. But everybody, it makes sense for these actors and actresses to be representing the characters that they do. Especially right. Lucius Malfoy. When his character shows up on screen, you know him immediately. Yeah,
1: I I really, I think Baylor's right with the Bellatrix actress. She is incredible throughout the entire thing but the lucius character, i mean when he appears, you know who that is without any other sign. Like you don't need to hear him speak, you don't need to see how he's acting, just that hair and just that like pompous standing. I I don't know how to explain it, but it was perfect. Yeah.
0: I correct me if i'm wrong, but i believe the person who plays Bellatrix is the the owner of the YouTube channel, she right? She is, Kelsey yes. Ellison. She's the
1: director, the writer, Bellatrix, and the IndieGoGo creator.
0: Her, uh, her performance just gets better and better throughout this. I film. agree.
1: There, there's a point we'll talk about later, and I think I know which one we're talking about, Brady, or you'll know which one. The uh, in a fight scene mm-hmm. where she really feels like a Bellatrix. Yeah,
2: so, yeah. So, mm-hmm. for well, my favorite part about her is just the fact that she looks kind of innocent at the beginning, and then slowly over you know over the entire film she solely is going insane and it's very obvious both uh looking at her and then the way she's acting yeah uh that she is going insane
1: i do love that because there can be bad people i believe that but i feel like a villain is way more impactful if you know why they're a villain and this oblivion background and all this stuff where she was just a rebel it seems like you don't know if she was going to marry a pureblood wizard or not, but because her parents said this is what you're going to do and she didn't want to just take their word as law, I mean, it would make sense that with her mind being scrambled on perhaps a daily basis on top of being a rebel at heart that she could end up pretty sadistic.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that for sure.
1: But after this, we get a two-year cut and we see the sisters outside of Hogwarts walking around in some sort of field. And it seems like Andromeda and uh, Narcissa are, you know, just having a good time talking. They're eating birdie-bots, every-flavored beans and things like that. While Bellatrix is just casually practicing the killing curse on random plants and perhaps small woodland animals. But
0: (laughs) it's kind of an awkward scene just out of nowhere. It's definitely... I don't know. Something must have happened to push Bellatrix to practicing the Avada Kedavra from the last time we saw her to two years later now. uh, It's worth noting that she's not able to do it. She doesn't... In the books, in the canon series, Harry tries to Crucio Bellatrix, and she lectures him about needing to truly hate the person that you're trying to curse. Right. And here, she's trying to cast Avada Kedavra on a flower, and she just can't do it. So it's a really interesting... um, look into how
2: she just doesn't have that side of her fully developed yet right I I wonder kind of if if it's like their dad asking them to do it or like you know trying to convince them to learn how to do it because even Andromeda and Narcissa they kind of when they see her uh, struggling to finish the spell you know they kind of go up and console her they don't say why are you doing that you know so it's, it's it's almost like it's expected for the, for them. It's to weirdly do that casual, spell. like yeah. it is very weirdly casual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: it also makes me wonder if it's not as unforgivable as we think of in the original series. Like, surely at some point throughout your Hogwarts career, you find out about these three unforgivable curses, and being a teenager, you might go hide off in the woods or something and try to like cast one of them. Just to do it, you know? Yeah, that's fair. So maybe it's just a little bit of that. But it is a twist from what we originally saw where, you know, they don't seem to have any of these hatred intentions and all of a sudden just going around casting it nonchalantly or trying to at least.
0: I think it's interesting that after a while uh, she's casting it and then all of a sudden they all get really paranoid that the Ministry is there, which... I find it interesting that the ministry doesn't show up, right? Considering that I think it's established that the ministry knows if you're casting an unforgivable curse, right? But it turns out to just be Ted Tonks instead.
1: Yeah, good <laughs> old Ted Tonks walks in. That poor guy reminds me a little bit of Neville Longbottom in a sense. Like he seems adept in everything, but he's just like so out of his place and socially unaware of what's going on. And he just walks in and hands him some gig leaflets for his band down at a muggle pub.
0: Yeah, good for him. Yeah, you good know, guy. As I think they're opening for the Weird Sisters.
1: It's, it, I did think I saw that, yeah. Or maybe they were part of it. I can't remember, but I thought it was on the leaflet, right?
0: That's pretty cool, but uh, Bellatrix is not thrilled. Neither is Narcissa. Yeah, they're both pretty mad.
1: Yeah, they are not happy that he's there. They tell him off. I mean, Andromeda doesn't really say anything. But she does give a small smile that kind of gives away that, like, she's not really about this hatred based off of just blood status. Like, she thinks Ted is a pretty cool guy, it seems. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's yeah. It's the, the rule of thirds, right? Like, if you've got a group of three, one person will usually have a dissenting opinion, and we're kind of seeing that right. in this instance as well.
1: Right. But it, it is interesting, too, like... All this is going on, like, they're casting, or she's casting Avada Cadavra. Ted Tonk shows up and all this stuff, and it's, like, a pretty serious moment, but there's also, like, this break where, while she's casting the Killing Curse, her sister is still comfortable enough with her to shove an earwax bean into her mouth. <laughs> yeah. Like, if I saw someone practicing a Killing Curse, I don't think I would interact with them in any negative way. <laughs>
0: They're just kids, I guess. Yeah, I mean, still. I mean, and I guess so. The house they grow they're growing up in is clearly not something that's It's like this is not an unacceptable thing in the house they're growing up in. Right. So I just for me this also felt like a like an opening scene, like a tone setting scene more than anything else. Right. Especially because of what happens next.
1: Yeah. Cuz directly next, speaking of, we uh find out that Lestrange, Rudolphus Lestrange, has set up a meeting with the Dark Lord for the Three Sisters, or for a group of people, including the Three Sisters. So we go meet Voldemort in this fanfiction. We do. Yeah. And he is not what I expected.
0: Yeah. I I was going to say, if there was, I guess, one person I would would choose as maybe not the most prototypical casting for a character, it would probably be the person that's
2: playing Voldemort.
1: Yeah, what do you think, Baylor?
2: You know, I was just going to say that he definitely reminds me a lot more of a vampire than a wizard in (laughs) this scene. Yeah. Um, But I I do think, you know, this was kind of after some some of the Horcruxes had been created, maybe all of them, other than Harry, obviously. Um, And so... Kind of the the look that he has, you know, he has, like, bags under his eyes. He looks sick, in my opinion. Um, kind of haughty, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that they did that part well, you know, because that resembles kind of, oh, part of his soul is gone.
1: Could th- be, because he's supposed to be, like, a really good-looking, like, charming guy, right? In I, his childhood I, and everything.
2: In his youth,
0: yes, yeah. but I agree with what you're saying here, Baylor, because... Uh, This is definitely after the time period where uh, Voldemort went to to the woman's house who owned the Helga Hufflepuff's cup and killed her to make a horcrux. And so uh, I agree that he looks like a sick man, and that's probably the way he might look if he's splitting his soul and working so hard to try to make himself immortal. Yeah. He's also... Mm -hmm. He's like middle aged at this point, anyways. Voldemort is. Right. He's twenty five years older than Bellatrix, and she's at this point what eighteen, probably something like so that. He's in his, in his middle aged years, anyways, and uh, that fits as well. It's believable that this guy who's cast for Voldemort would be in his
2: forties. Yep, I agree.
1: So when we meet Mister Mort, Mister Voldy, um we have a conversation with him briefly where he talks about blood status and blood traitors specifically naming albus dumbledore and then he has he demands a duel with bellatrix where she surprisingly is able to hold her own pretty well against him i mean i don't think he's utilizing his full power or anything until the end maybe but she he's particularly impressed with her dueling, especially her random spinning around when she casts some spells <laughs>
0: yeah, it's very <laughs> she definitely flourishes a lot when she's yeah. casting spells, which is cool and uh some unique flavor for her and I just wanted to uh obviously we're not talking about aQ right now, but this is reminiscent of the scene where the scenes where shirtlift would test Alex by just dueling Alex and right. not using her full power it's the same thing here. Voldemort is pretty impressed by Bellatrix in this scene. And then when it's time for him to let her know who's boss,
2: he lets her know who's, who's boss. Right. Right. I, I kind of, um, you know, like this also reminded me of the canon Bellatrix because she kind of is very wave her arms all over the place and, and kind of dance, you know, when she was like wanting to torture people, which is kind of messed up. But, um, like like that her spinning around, uh, uh Kelsey, right? Uh let me just make sure. Yes. Yeah, Kelsey when she was spinning around, uh, reminded me of those scenes as well. It's very I, I agree. a hundred percent I agree. Bellatrix in
0: the in the Canon movies has always kind of reminded me of like a Halloween town witch gone bad a little bit. Kind of like very very flamboyant with movements, very flourishes with every little thing, laughs a whole bunch in, like, a weird, maniacal way. And, uh, again, in this scene, that's captured.
1: Right. Absolutely. So, basically, we go through that little trial, and it seems like we're now into the thick of the first Wizarding War with Voldemort. Like, the next scene is a couple years later, it seems. Um... And the sisters are out in that same field we saw them in doing the same thing. Andromeda and Narcissa are just kind of having a girl talk, basically, between sisters, while Bellatrix is casting the killing curse again, or trying to again, on everything, but she is much more panicked and rushed in this scene, telling her sisters that he expects me to get this. So, I mean, she, at this point, is a agent of Voldemort. Right.
0: Yeah. I think it's set up. For us to think maybe she's talking about her father again. Right. But it's definitely that she's been recruited to, to the Dark Lord's side.
1: Right. She she seems to be almost fully gone at this point. Like, she's f- probably pledged herself to his cause, and uh, it's clear that she cares about nothing more than to impress him.
2: Right. Another thing, it's, it's kind of neat because uh, this is kind of the first time we see Bellatrix, like be stressed about anything like kind of from the from the first scene we kind of see how successful she's been in school like it's it's been easy for her Um, I think she even brags about the amount of newts that she had to her dad Um, but like this is the first time that she's really feeling the pressure and so we this is like the kickoff of that kind of going from a normal person to the insane Bellatrix that we know from the original series
1: right and I just want to point out again too this scene it's pretty brief, but it closes again, showing Sig. Oh man, I can't remember his name. Cygnus. Cygnus, thank you. Removing memories from Bellatrix, Andromeda, I believe, like opens a door, and he's just in there messing with her mind again.
0: It's definitely. I don't know, it, and we don't, we just don't have enough time in this film to get answers about that. But it's definitely. It just feels weird. Every time this memory manipulation stuff gets brought up from a father to a daughter, it's kind of
1: it's not comfortable. It's unsettling. Watch. Yeah.
0: Mhm. I wonder what he's trying to pull from her in this moment.
2: Well, like the the actor who plays uh Cygnus is very good at making you scared, you know what I mean? Like he is very forceful with with extracting these memories and it, and it I definitely felt, you know, scared for Bellatrix. Like, almost almost as if it was going to be, like, a father being their child in the muggle world.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I can't even, maybe I'm missing someone, but I can't even think of anyone from the original trilogy that makes me feel more uncomfortable than him. Because, I mean, what he's doing is pretty dark, and he plays the character with, like, so much hatred that I don't mm. really see that in the original movies. Yeah, it's not
0: quite the same, but the scene where Rita Skeeter pulls... Fourth year Harry into a, that's pretty a bad broom too. closet is yeah. pretty uncomfortable as yeah, well. Yeah,
1: that's pretty bad, but in a different way, right? Definitely like, a different way. I don't know. That actor played his role as Cygnus, correct? Yes. Yes, very well.
0: <laughs> very well. He's he's a jerk, and we all know it.
1: Yeah. Um. Shortly after this, we get like a brief little transition i guess where we're hearing like wizarding radio it's talking about how it's 1972 and death eaters are claiming responsibility for attacks and lord voldemort's name comes over the radio so he's not yet who he who must not be named he's still lord voldemort at this point but we open in with lucius doing what he does best in convincing people to do his dirty work (laughs)
0: Sure. So, Bellatrix is 21 years old at this point. Okay. This is, what, nine years before Harry's born?
1: Right. So, we open into the Black House with Cygnus and Druella listening to a proposition from Lucius and from Bellatrix to use their house as an operations base for the Dark Lord. And this scene is probably where this fan film sold me. Because it is perfect to have Lucius come up with all these reasons that he can't use his own house. So you should use yours because it will definitely benefit you in the long run. It's also. Like, it's such a great political move by him.
0: It's also interesting to have Lucius explaining why his house should not be the base of operations, considering his house becomes the base of operations during the second reign of Voldemort.
1: Well, I do think, and maybe I'm wrong here, Baylor, you can chime in too, but maybe Lucius doesn't have the pull with the ministry during the first war as he ends up having during the second. Because, like, he has a lot of officials, but they don't necessarily, like, bow to him in the same way that, like, Fudge did in the original series.
2: Well, you also think, you know, like, in this scene, he's also a a young kid, you know, probably just out of Hogwarts. So still hasn't really made a name for himself and is probably using his parents' house like that. That was probably, you know, not something that he wanted to do was to use his parents' house. But, and then we see in the original series, you know, the second reign, he has all this political power with, with Fudge, like you said, and then, um, you know, has just placed himself in a good place where, if if Voldemort wants to get to the top of the ministry, he's going to look for someone like Lucius who's there.
0: Yeah, according to Harry Potter Wiki, Lucius was born in 1954. So in 1972, or roughly around that time, he's just barely 18.
1: Yeah, still a young guy.
0: Right. He's already a master manipulator at that age. And so that probably leads, lends credence to what you're saying, Delbert, about him having more money during the second go-around, because if he's only 18, he certainly hasn't amassed the wealth that he has.
1: And I'm also assuming that because we don't hear about them at all in the original series, his parents probably died between now and then, and he probably inherited all that wealth.
2: That's a good thought, for sure. Yeah, and that that would match Lucius to a T. Right. One one thing I wanted to mention about uh, the character who played Lucius, or the actor, excuse me, that played Lucius. Um, in the original series, we kind of, you know, obviously see Lucius as always this bitter, uh, just rude guy, obviously. I mean, that's like the most blunt way to say it, but in this series, it's almost like Bellatrix where we see kind of the more of an innocent look on Lucius. Like before something bad happens, obviously becomes a Death Eater, whatever. So, kind of, I'm not sure how I feel about that, uh that different feel for Lucius. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I think, I just think maybe Lucius's backstory or the way his character is portrayed in this particular film doesn't matter that much since really we're primarily focused on the sisters more than anything else. I will say that what's interesting about Lucius is, especially from this scene, we're finding out that he's pretty much leaning towards Voldemort's side already at least whether it's out of self-preservation or because he actually agrees either way he's saying hey let's use your place because it will be better for you in the long run whereas Narcissa even here is playing it right down the middle still and we see that Narcissa's is like the ultimate Slytherin right she's right. she's gonna do whatever's best for herself and the people close to her we're seeing that now where she hasn't made a clear decision about does she want to be on the side of good or evil. Just like at the very end of the Harry Potter series where when it's better for her, she turns on Lord Voldemort. Right. So it's fun that Lucius is still developing, but we have Narcissa being essentially who she is even from this age.
1: Right. Right. And I think it's neat to see, because we've got the three sisters, and we know where they end up. And it's exactly as they're being played here, right? Like, Bellatrix is very clearly leaning towards the darkest of darks. Andromeda is kind of leaning towards the light. But you're right, Narcissa is kind of just playing the middle ground, just waiting to see what happens.
0: There's a lot of comments on the video itself addressing that as well, discussing how they, they each represent uh one of the Deathly Hallows for that reason or they right. each we can see them grow into who they become for the main series, which is really, really nice for the fan film to like stay true to that and pay homage to it and kind of
2: show their backstory as they grow. Right. I really appreciate that part of this, for sure.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, I really like how truthful they stay to the characters throughout. It's it's interesting to see especially on such a small budget, to be able to do it so well. As this meeting progresses, it seems like the black parents are more and more enticed by the offer, and they finally make a deal with Bellatrix, telling her that if she gets married to a pure-blood family, they'll allow their house to be used as the operation center for Lord Voldemort.
0: And she pretty much immediately... (laughs) So she says fine, and it already has somebody picked out. Yeah, so, she's
1: like, how does Lestrange sound?
0: I, I guess I wonder what the backstory is from even prior to this film starting that make them so concerned that she's not going to marry a pureblood. Right. She's not the one to be concerned about in that regard.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's crazy how much they missed <laughs> what was right in front of their face where they're worried about Bellatrix but not Andromeda. Yeah.
2: I kinda like how this film also went along the lines of the main series. Like we don't really see Bellatrix and Rodolphus Lestrange that much together in the normal series unless I'm completely forgetting no, the major part. But you're correct. I enjoyed how this film also kind of kept them apart. Like like their their marriage was more of a, a tactical marriage versus like a love a love fest.
1: Yeah, that that's exactly what I was gonna say because Bellatrix does not seem like someone who gives a shit about love. Like, she is just there to serve Voldemort and be powerful. That's, well, the, like, her entire character.
0: The person that she's most obsessed with can't understand what love is. Right. So,
1: so I mean, the fact she was married always kind of threw me for a loop. I'm like, oh, yeah, she is married. But it didn't make sense for her character. And this kind of makes sense where it's, like, political rather than anything else. Yep. yep. Before we get to the wedding, which is the following scene, we do have a short scene where the three sisters are together. Um, Bellatrix is in her wedding gown, and Narcissa and Andromeda are in there, I assume. Um, Not groomsmen. Ooh, I can't think of the word. Not maid of honor.
2: Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids Bridesmaids. (laughs) outfits.
1: And uh, I just wanted to point out a little funny scene that we see here where lucius is uh getting a little flame because he bought a nice little uh love present for narcissa and andromeda is just sitting there like "Ooh, mr death eater has a <laughs> <little> yeah, yeah. <laughs> lovely side a sensitive side and it's just kind of a funny thought to think about because like you could look at some of the leading bad people in history like you know um, pablo escobar killed plenty of people and everything But was still like really loving of his family and everything. And it's such a weird thing to think of taking someone out of their element they're known for and putting them into that kind of family scene.
2: That was probably the last time Lucius did that because he got so much, uh, you know, he got made fun of for doing that. That's true. That's what what turned him. That's what turned him. That's when he started saving his money. Right. Right then. Right. No more gifts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like that this leads into the wedding most mainly because we get a nice cameo from Sirius at the we wedding he, he shows up and that's pretty cool
1: yeah i was happy to see yeah. him um he's talking with andromeda because he apparently has figured out that she's the one that is probably the most reasonable of his family um shows her the incomplete marauders map which bellatrix also gets her hands on and they end up giving him the advice that he should put a uh secret passphrase on it so that nobody can view it except for him.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like really it. fun. Yeah. It's a nice reminder also of where Sirius comes from. Like he he's a a like tried and true Gryffindor, a generally good guy who comes from just really a not very nice background.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. it it's cool to see him and even more so in my opinion is seeing his still alive mother just bellowing not caring who hears what she's saying yep. and we need to make progress you and the caro girl yeah and it's just fantastic it's so well played it's awesome i she's, love scene. I
0: mean, it's she's how she is in the portrait yeah just she is in real life
1: like it's all about the family name it's all about making alliances and things like this It it's funny to see
2: my my favorite part of that scene was just how casual it was to have serious black amongst all these death eaters. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it, it it's interesting uh it's an interesting point of view, you know, during the the uprising of Voldemort uh that that life just continued like normal even though uh one of his first cousins was joining the dark lord, you know, or or I guess maybe they don't know that, but I mean given how their family talks and everything.
1: Well, it, it's, you it know, is it is brought up that he's a part of the order in this um mini film. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you're right. One of them is becoming Voldemort's right-hand woman, and the other one is a member of the Order that's trying to upseat the Dark Lord. So it's interesting seeing those two on the same screen kind of just interacting with each other a little bit normally. hmm As we move into the wedding, an or or a couple Aurors, come in. They immediately silence Cygnus, Yes. I'm going to remember that by the end of this. (laughs) Um, And they start approaching Bellatrix saying, you cast a dark mark, blah, 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 blah. But at the last second, they actually are approaching Andromeda instead and arresting her for casting the dark mark and associating with the Dark Lord.
0: Yeah, fairly strange. Uh, I see here that you were wondering maybe if Bellatrix had polyjuiced herself. That was
1: what I was considering. I'm not sure exactly what happened here.
0: I think they both just have black hair, to be honest.
1: And they just mistook them? Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, it couldn't be Bellatrix because she's still an Auror trainee or something right. like that. So it yeah. must be her sister.
2: I even think the Aurors are like, address Bellatrix, you know? They're like, uh, they say something to the effect of, oh, hey, how are you doing? You know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and
1: I think we skipped over it and we probably should have brought it up, but Bellatrix at this point is... An Auror or an Auror trainee while being a part of the Death Eaters?
0: She is, and she tries to—she steps in and says, like, hey, whoa, my sister would never do something like that, and they, like—the Aurors uh, who are there tell her that they're just doing business, and that's the way it is. So I think that's just, just a case of mistaken identity where Bellatrix was out causing problems, and because she was an Auror in training, the— uh the orers think it can't possibly be her, and so they go for the next closest thing, which is her sister, who also has black hair. Right. By this sense. point in the film, I wanted to just bring up that Bellatrix has gotten progressively more Bellatrix-like. Yes. Her hair has gotten longer and more curly. Her eyes have gotten even more kind of crazy-looking. Um. We're getting up to a scene. I don't know if we're there yet, but there's a scene coming up where... One of her eyes is covered, and she is like the spitting image of Helena Bonham Carter.
1: Yeah, no, it it was really good when that scene happened. I believe that was when—it's it it's towards the end, I believe, when Tonks
0: re-enters. And so that's something—it's like when the actress who played Umbridge wore progressively more and more awful shades of pink throughout right. the Order of the Phoenix movie. It's like that, except for uh, the actress who's playing Bellatrix in this fan film is becoming— progressively more and more like the Bellatrix we saw from Helena Bonham Carter. And it's just a really nice touch. Yeah. Really, really like it.
1: No, it really shows the transition, like you're saying. And Baylor said it earlier, too. Like, when we when I asked about the actors that are playing these people, what do you like about them? And Baylor was like, with her, she just gets more and more like her. She's better and better as it goes on.
2: Yeah, that was probably my favorite part of the fan film, to be honest, was just that that subtle but obvious change.
0: Yeah, uh, as this the movie pro-
2: progressed. Is, this is really the point, also,
0: I think, and where Bellatrix goes from being one of the sisters to tried and true, like, full-on Death Eater.
1: Yeah. In fact, in my next scene, where uh, we'll just get into it, it shows Bellatrix casting a dark mark and Andromeda rushing out and saying, what are you doing, basically? And she's like... Did someone die? And she's like, oh, just a few muggles. Yeah. Like, nothing happened. No emotion on her face. She's not sad about anything. She doesn't even look happy about anything. She's just there to cast the dark mark and kill muggles if need be.
0: She's fully turned at this point, and I think we don't necessarily see it, really, but this is probably where Andromeda also fully turns, but in the opposite direction. I
1: agree. Like, this is, I think, the point of no return for Bellatrix, and Andromeda recognizes that. And realizes this is not for me.
0: So, what stops – because, like, we don't really see Narcissa being fully bad or fully good. No. Right? Is the fact that she's with Lucius already, is that the determining factor for her? Like, being with Lucius, who's clearly going to become rich and be able to afford a really easy and nice lifestyle – Is that just what she decides is best for her? Or is it that she's too scared of Bellatrix to try to do what Andromeda's doing? Um, I don't know, because they don't really address that necessarily.
1: I think it's a mix of what you said with cowardice, basically. Because I think Lucius is just a giant coward throughout the entire series. And obviously she aligns with him. But additionally, I think she's still trying to save her family. At that time. Sure. Like, she doesn't want to pick a side because she's afraid she'll lose the sister on the other side.
0: That's fair. That's actually a really nice point. Now, especially when I'm looking at your next note about what happens next in the film where Ted shows up again right. and a and a
2: wizard's duel breaks out. I did want to say that I, I think it's a mixture of both indifference where uh, Narcissa's kind of going with the flow, going with the majority i guess with her family and also the fact that she probably falls in love with lucius pretty early on i would guess especially given how early they were interacting in the movie um, that that I guess, that's my thought on it yeah they are together in the very first scene of the movie right. at yeah. hogwarts so and
0: i think you're right
1: i i wanted to point out as well just on narcissus credit here she stands idly by not criticizing bellatrix for killing the muggles or being a part of the group that killed the muggles. But then also she accompanies Andromeda to meet with Sirius, knowing he's a member of the Order of the Phoenix or has friends in it, to pass along some information to help stop the Dark Lord. And she claims that it's to get them out of their house. But I feel like it's a little bit more of like she knows something's wrong, but she's afraid to speak
0: up herself. It is interesting, now that you've brought up that she's just trying to keep her family together. I think that you're probably exactly right, and that's why she's playing both sides of things.
1: Like I think she even recognizes that Bellatrix is gone and she's like grasping at straws to try to get rid of the dark lord in some way to bring her
2: back. So then Definitely. Well, we also see that kind of coming up where uh she's kind of split on who to side with, you know, when the when the big fight happens. Right. Later on. Yeah, I was going to say So then the breaking point
0: probably is the fact that in the next scene when Andromeda and Bellatrix are dueling because of Ted, Narcissa sees that one of her sisters is choosing to maintain the pureblood status that her family expects and the other one isn't. And so then she sides with Bellatrix because she thinks that the pureblood thing is more important.
1: And it might also be out of fear, too, because if she turns against Bellatrix, Bellatrix might kill her.
0: Well, it's true. We see finally in this scene, the next scene where this duel is happening, that Bellatrix has finally developed enough hatred for people who are not pure blood to cast Avada Kedavra, and she does cast it in this next scene. And at first, this is the only moment in this entire fan film where I thought they broke from canon for a second.
1: Right. And this, just to give everyone a good view of how this scene opens, we open to that same field we've been in twice where Narcissa and Bellatrix confront andromeda who is hanging out with tonks throwing him to the ground and telling her she can't be with him and she informs them andromeda informs them it's too late and holds up a a wedding ring or an engagement ring one of the two and uh at that point bellatrix loses her mind like you said for the first time she truly hates something being ted tonks and it appears that she's about to kill ted but instead successfully cast the killing curse on a flower next to his head. And but I, she's
0: done it. It strikes to me it strikes me that the only reason she didn't direct the curse at Ted is she didn't think she could do it at this point still. Right. And then all of a sudden she does it and everybody is like,
2: Oh my god. They're gosh. like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not only like that and then also you can see it in her eyes like she's like, Oh, I've reached my full potential finally. Like it's it's terrifying what possibly could happen, you know, uh, in that situation.
0: And it's yeah. it's right around here, right around here where that scene happens. Where This is where it all breaks out. Where Bellatrix, she's got one eye covered. Her hair is as curly as it has been. It's long, and uh, Kelsey... The actress playing Bellatrix looks just like Helena Bonham Great Carter. Job. The portrayal is insanely I also similar. love
1: the scene where she, she gets a cut on her arm from Andromeda, and rather than retaliating, she just sits on the ground and licks her own blood and starts just cackling, Yeah, basically.
0: She's fully crazy at this mm-hmm. point.
1: Licks her blood and says, you taste that? Pure. And, I mean, she is... Yeah. She's into the character at that point. That's Bellatrix, it's, no doubt.
0: It's really, really well done. A yep. really good portrayal.
1: So as the duel breaks out, it starts by uh Bellatrix crucioing Ted and eventually Andromeda breaking free by petrifying or no, uh Imperioing Narcissa. <laughs> yep. And then eventually Narcissa's freed and they have a good old two on two duel for a little bit. Ted and Andromeda versus the other two sisters.
0: Hey, the split is the fracture is now 100% complete.
1: Yeah, it's it's over.
0: They, in fact, as soon as this ends, Andromeda and Ted leave together, and I assume that's the last time that Andromeda is, is friendly with either of her two sisters.
1: Right. Yeah. But throughout the scene, I mean, we see the duels. Everyone kind of keeps it, for the most part, neutral. I don't think anyone gets seriously harmed in the duel, but... The thing I wanted to talk about that I hinted at earlier, Brady, is there's a scene where Bellatrix is dueling, and uh, she just does this like little, almost like a heel kick in midair, cheering while oh, she's yeah. while she's casting dangerous spells, uh, emitting fire from her mouth like Iroh from Avatar. I mean, it, it's a cool little scene, and she has completely lost her mind.
0: The part where she does the <laughs> the part where she does the little heel kick while she's like cackling and just casting spells yeah. cause it's fun. That is uh very on brand. Yeah. It, so. That part I, you and I watched this together initially and I laughed out loud when this yeah. happened, I stopped <laughs> and went back to it and replayed it a couple of times.
1: It's a great scene. It really is. It's, I mean,
0: it's really
2: good.
1: Yeah. Baylor, what was your take on the duels?
2: Uh, I thought they were really well done. Uh, both acting and, you know, uh, the CGI part of it. Um, I kind of I'm I'm in agreement with you guys. I mean that is so Bella like, uh, Bellatrix like to be dancing and heel kicking and and cackling when when you know trying to kill or seriously hurt somebody you know or uh, otherwise incapacitate them.
1: So we get one final scene after this duel. Andromeda and Ted take their leave, and we come into a room with vials and vials of memories saved up, and it's Narcissa the whole time is how this has been um, portrayed is that we're continually in someone's memories and it turns out it's her memories throughout. So we're seeing all these memories she has stored up of her sister Andromeda who has been banned from the house, banned from her life, and she has no contact with the name anymore, but she saved all these memories so she can go back and revisit the times with her sister. Yeah.
0: It's, I like that that's the perspective that we're getting and, up until this point, I hadn't realized it, but everything that's happening is happening in the presence of Narcissa. Yeah, she's there through the entire film.
1: Yep, and yeah, eventually Bellatrix shows up to this scene and makes the connection. Watching this, that you know Narcissa has been feeding information to the Order. That Narcissa is the one that's keeping all these memories. That she isn't just getting rid of her own sister in the way Bellatrix found it so easy to do, that she's still, you know, holding on to those strings.
0: It's just overall, if this is the backstory for the the Sisters of House Black that gets implemented into canon in some way, I'm 100% satisfied. I'd believe it. It's great. Yeah.
2: Another cool thing is that we kind of see uh, Narcissa. It's almost like, she, obviously, this is after, like you have here, Delbert, after the fall of Voldemort, But we see Narcissa's obviously, like, reminiscing, you know? Like, I'm sure she's probably thinking, was it worth it to break this family up over this guy who's now gone and has abandoned us, you know? Um, So I just think that's a really cool way to look at it. And I also think if it is, if it were to be canon, it also kind of matches with Narcissa's character. Like, at the very end of the original Harry Potter series, uh, we see, you know, Narcissa's the one sent to see if Harry's alive, and when she asks about Draco, you know, is Draco alive? Like her own, her main goal, you know, screw Voldemort, screw Harry, whatever. Her main goal is to keep her family together and keep her family alive. And so right. this definitely lines up with, with that whole thing. So I, I 100% agree. I'm very satisfied if this is canon, for and sure.
1: I wanted to bring this up too, Baylor, because you said that he's gone at this point. Voldemort's been defeated by Harry in this scene. But Bellatrix is not having it. I mean, the reason she showed up to this room and it falls out of her sleeve is she has a memory vial titled Alice Longbottom. And another one falls out that we can only assume is Frank Longbottom. And she tells Narcissa he's not gone. Voldemort's still here and the Longbottoms know where he is. So this is really cool, I think, because it shows that their torture was for nothing because he was gone at that stage and, like, Bellatrix could not have gotten anything from them, so they didn't... I I guess they didn't really have a point to have been tortured, but it shows that psychotic side of her, that she could not give up the idea that Voldemort was still there.
0: Yeah. She couldn't live with it. Torture aside, it's really cool that this is the scene that we're left with, because that means that this story finishes right where canon starts essentially right. if what what yeah. we know about bellatrix's character in canon is that she got put in azkaban for being a death eater but also because she viciously tortured the long bottoms right. into insanity and that's right where this fan film kind of finishes it really sets that next scene the tortured the long bottoms up for the viewer and yeah. for the story
1: And the very last thing I want to point out is in this scene that Malfoy love piano is still sitting there and it starts playing with Bellatrix there and Narcissa there. So, I mean, I think it's still showing that even through all of this, maybe Bellatrix was still possibly a tiny amount good, still loved her sisters, but I also think it was like, if Voldemort's gone, look what I've done to my family for nothing. Mm, so yeah. I think it's like her not being able to accept what she had done for her lord to find that he was actually gone. So I think it was just her not being able to accept because of what she had done that he had disappeared.
0: That's nice. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice touch. The the whole the whole fan film thing, right? You can be as critical as you want to, but the fact that that these people made such a coherent film on such a small budget with with decent special effects and pretty good acting overall and frankly, really good storytelling uh, is just super impressive. And it's, it's the reason why I think fan fiction doesn't get enough credit. You know, a lot of the time when you tell people that you like to read fan fiction, they look at you kind of weird. They kind of give you the side glance like, oh, you like fan fiction, but Stuff like this, stuff like AQ, is a reason why I think fan fiction is extremely valuable. Okay, and it gives answers to things that we just don't have answers for, and it gives backstory about stuff that otherwise we're not likely to get. Right. And so I just think that this film fits right in with being top-tier fan fiction-type stuff for
2: people that like the Harry Potter world. I agree. I completely agree with that. And I also want to say that I really appreciate fan fictions like you had mentioned that we kind of leave this this uh, fan film right when canon begins Um, I really appreciate fan fictions uh, that don't change canon too much Um, I'm not saying I I don't like them the ones that do I just I think that like these ones you know that give answers that are not necessarily canon answers but give us something to think about and then uh, you know explore a different side of the Harry Potter world that I just love fan fictions like that. And then also you get the idea where J.K. Rowling finished writing the Harry Potter series, you know, in the, the late, you know, like 2007, 2008, I can't remember the exact uh, year, but like, fan fiction is what is con- keeping this series going. Like, I, I'm not gonna, you know, you can't tell me that it's uh, Cursed Child that has done a whole lot for the series, or even the fan- Fantastic Beasts uh, series that's done a lot for the for the uh, the world of Harry Potter, it's it's these fan fictions that are keeping, at least for us and for me especially, is keeping the, the Harry Potter uh, faith alive, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I think that's well stated. I mean, I know it's not perfect, but had this come out and instead of Cursed Child been the thing that J.K.R. made ca- canon, I think there would have been a lot less backlash.
0: I agree. I a dis- lot less. Something like this is much more satisfying, I think, to fans of Harry Potter than, than like, a cheap re- redone version of the main Harry Potter storyline. Right. You know, and right. that's how Cursed Child feels, and Fantastic Beasts was a great attempt at that, and I think had it stayed Fantastic Beasts and had it stayed outside a world of, of scandal and... Not really scandal, but just kind of...
1: Political intrigue, ignorance.
0: And war, and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of ignorance from somebody who represents themselves as a champion for all people. Uh, it would have been better. And this this film, Sisters of the House Black, that this film does stay outside of that and exists as its own thing. It's in the same universe, but it's a different story entirely. And that's, uh, that's just refreshing and really nice, I think, for people who like fan fiction type stuff.
1: Perfect. I have one last thing on this, unless you guys have any final comments.
0: I also have one last thing, and it's just, if you're interested, they're not from the same creator, but there's another shorter fan film called Neville Longbottom and the Black Witch that essentially picks up right where this right where this film finishes with Bellatrix going and hunting down the Longbottoms.
2: It's definitely worth a watch. It's very, very well done. I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed uh, this fan film. Uh, I think it was very well done on such a small budget. And honestly, until you guys brought that up, I didn't even know there was a budget, uh, but that doesn't mean I'm any less impressed. Uh, so definitely go check it out. If, how are you? I want to, I think that the way we're structuring
0: our podcast going forward, there's room for us to watch some of these other fan films and talk about them because it's a, it's a very unique experience compared to reading, a, a fan fiction story that somebody has written, especially when you get the visual aspect added into it.
1: Right. The last thing I was going to say is that I have been reading your book, Brady, The Anthropocene Reviewed, which I don't think you've had a chance to read yet. Baylor, have you had a chance to read that? It's by John uh, not. Green. Okay. One thing I want to do for this, just because I'm currently reading it, is everything in that book, John Green gives a rating out of five stars. So I'd like to hear your five-star maximum rating on this fan film
0: uh if i was gonna rate this out of five i would give it four stars out of five uh why i would not give it five out of five i couldn't really tell you off the top (laughs) of my head but for me four out of five is something that you you rate something four out of five when it's really good but not quite perfect and that's how i feel about this fan film is that it's
2: really really good but not quite perfect
1: yeah how about you baylor yeah I would
2: agree I would agree with that uh definitely go four out of five um acting though the acting especially by uh Kelsey was a five out of five for me and and the other characters in in the uh the film were also up there like it was it was great for being a fan film, a fan production
1: I'm gonna edge just a little bit above you guys to four and a half stars.
0: I think it's fair.
1: The acting, especially like Baylor just said out of Kelsey, like there is not a point throughout that story besides maybe Voldemort that I don't believe who the character is, is that character as a child or as a young adult.
0: I think on top of that, when you're looking at fan fiction, a, a big part of the rating comes from how satisfied are you? with this being a piece of the Harry Potter universe. Right. And as as we already stated, I'm very satisfied if this fits right in.
1: Okay. Well, if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it. It's on YouTube. It's free.
0: There will be a link in our description uh, of this episode for you to check this out and really go support it because it's, it's, it's Harry Potter content coming from a positive source.
1: It's very good. It's yep. very, very well meaning. It's not you know, providing income to JKR, if that's your main worry. And really, any view you give is going to support the creators a lot more than it's going to support the original author.
0: And if you're Kelsey and you want to come on the podcast to talk to us about creating this, please. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Anytime. (laughs) Shout out,
0: Kelsey. Incredible. (laughs) Great Hermione dancer
1: as well, for those that saw her on TikTok or Vine or whatever it was at the time. (laughs)
2: True. Yeah, that would, that would be a fantastic interview. So definitely reach out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, support Harry Potter content like this because as Baylor said, this is a big part of what keeps the Harry Potter fandom alive and active.
1: The other thing too is, like we said, Fantastic Beasts might not continue. But if big studios are seeing Harry Potter fan films like this, I think has 8 million views. There's some with 20 million views, Harry Potter fan fiction films. If they're seeing that many people watch amateur stuff, they're gonna try to retest the waters sooner than later. They will. Yeah. I agree. It's definitely an indicator
0: that there's there's an audience for this type of stuff. You just have to make content
2: that people want to see. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And there there is plenty of stuff in the Harry Potter canon universe that are unanswered. You know, the histories of so many things, the what happens next, you know, all that stuff could be explored. And I would love for it to be explored.
1: And one last note, if you want stuff that's not canon, go check out our Season 1 podcast on Alex Quick. It's a great book. Great series so far, too.
0: That's true. If somehow you're here without having read Alex Quick and you're just listening to this episode of the podcast, go back and read Alex Quick. It's worth it. It's definitely worth it. It's very
1: good, and we're going to be starting book two soon. You have plenty of time to catch up.
0: And with all that being said... I think we can wrap it up there. Uh, this is one of our two mid-season episodes. Next week, there's going to be an episode where we all write and then read our own short fan fictions that will not be anywhere near as good as Alexandra Quick or as this movie, but we're going to give it a shot, and it's just going to be a great time for us and really anybody else who wants to to come in and poke a little fun at Our creative writing skills so with that being said we are going to end it there don't forget to check out our social media don't forget to give us a review on whatever podcast platform you like to use i think that's it
1: may the fourth be with you
0: good night